like these to be able to know that we can enter into the presence of our God and our King, to know that our worship has the opportunity to please you, and God, that we can honor you. Thank you that you are the God who has saved us, who has brought us from death to life, and even more than that, God, even as we're reminded that you're a God of grace, a God of mercy, so good to be refreshed when you understand that you are also a God of authority and a God of power. A God who is the, not only the ability, but the power to, to, to destroy, to keep the enemy in his place and to destroy any bondage of sin that we might have placed ourselves under. And that in many ways, the only thing that keeps you from breaking the chains that we've bound ourselves with is your regard for us which is crazy the idea that the king of the universe would choose to honor the rights of a slave to choose even stupidly to remain bound and god that's our reality we just thank you we praise you we love you god we thank you for your great and deep love for us that there's nothing that you would not do for us oh lord and you prove that by the gift of your son jesus we love you. We thank you. We pray during this time, Lord, that you'd remind us of who you are, that you'd remind us of your deep and great love towards us, to remind us that you are a God of authority and of power. Lord, we humble ourselves and we set ourselves at your feet. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks, Dana. Thanks, worship team. Good morning, church. It has been a busy weekend, has it not? Man, there's been a lot, actually, week going on. Uh, it's really cool to hear how our awakening, our college ministry, has been uh, having such a great time over the course of the week. We worship in the Word on Wednesday, and then Brunswick Stew Night on Friday. I appreciate, Gabby, you inviting us to be a part. Our friends, our, uh, our friends, <laughs> our son and daughter came into town this week, so we want to get time with them. But Brunswick Stew, like, delish. That sounds really good. And then uh, Saturday morning at 8.30 in the morning, it was good to get a great kickoff for our Generate, our men's ministry. Uh, I can't imagine anyone actually being at their holiest at 8.30 in the morning, but it was exciting to know that now at least we can make a fire during that time. So that was really cool and encouraging. With battery and steel wool, I will not forget that ever, I think. So our women's ministry had a wonderful fellowship time last night at the O'Brien's house. I think, I believe, I wasn't invited again, but um, I'm assuming you guys had a fantastic time, and that's always good to hear when women get together, how encouraged and refreshed they are. And so here we are at church on Sunday morning at 11 or 10.30, which is a reasonable time, so no fires need to be built here today. Um, and we've been going through a series that I've been pretty excited about, a series that we've entitled uh, Sketches in Leadership. And... At the heart, and I hope you guys have appreciated the opportunity that we've taken over the course of the series, to take a deep, deeper look at the ordinary people who God transformed into accomplishing extraordinary work in the first century church. Ordinary people who God transformed into extraordinary leaders in the first century church. And Andrew kicked us off with Titus um, a few weeks ago, an elder maker and a doctrine defender. I uh, followed up with one of, another one of Paul's key men, Timothy, who challenged both young and old to grow in your uh, faith and to fight the good fight. 
And then uh, last week, we, instead of focusing on a person, we focused on a couple, Priscilla and Aquila, and how the Lord uses couples to minister together in unique ways. It requires an understanding when you are a couple that your interests not only are divided, but they must be. And yet, even in that division, to that serving your family and serving the Lord, those are what your uh, focus should be on. But beyond that is that we're building God's kingdom first and together. That that's what it means to be a couple on mission under the authority of Jesus. Which leads us to this week, which uh, interestingly enough was supposed to be on a man named Apollos. Um, I, I, was, I shared a bit about him last week during the story of Priscilla and Aquila, how he was a gifted preacher and uh, an influential leader, and yet also a humble man. There's a lot to learn about Apollos. Uh, he's everything, in many ways, everything you imagine when you imagine a leader, charismatic, gifted, um, and someone that people readily followed. And yet, over the course of this past week, I realized that's not the guy I really wanted to focus on. That wasn't the example that I really felt was um, important to profile this morning. And so I shifted gears, and uh, I'm going to choose, I chose another man instead, a man whose example probably fits more of us, maybe better than say fit, is an example that we are more likely to be able to relate to, connect with, and hopefully follow. Uh, a man who typifies what it means to live a small, not yet not insignificant life. A man who reminds us that being extraordinary in leadership doesn't mean you have to be big, bombastic, uh, or loud. Uh, it simply means you have to be faithful to be who God has made you to be and do what God has made you to do. And so the man I've chosen to go through this morning is uh, John Mark. Some of you might not recognize who John Mark is at first glance, but he's the Mark that, you know, wrote the Gospel of Mark. Um, in the Bible, the New Testament begins with four books called the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And they're called the Gospels because they were written to describe, to share with you the ministry of Jesus. And they do so through four unique and distinct perspectives. And uh, Mark is one of those written. It's widely considered to be the first of the Gospels written. It's the shortest. It's got 16 chapters. And because it was the first one written, there are a number of scholars who also believe that the writers of Matthew, Matthew and Luke, uh, actually looked at the Gospel of Mark and actually uh, used it as a reference point. And so uh, there's a lot more fun trivia about the Gospel of Mark. We actually taught it over the course of a summer a few years ago, but that's not the focus of our time. I share that with you because I want you, before we even start in to the story of Mark and who Mark is, what leadership lessons we can learn from Mark, um, I want you to, uh, I want to lead you into an important idea that epitomizes why I chose John Mark this morning. I don't want you to miss it. And to kind of help set up that idea, I want to share a quote written by one of the early church fathers. His name is Papias, uh, who once wrote this uh, in one of his, his writings. He wrote, Mark, having become the interpreter of Peter, wrote down accurately whatsoever he remembered. It was not, however, in exact order that he related the sayings or deeds of Christ, for he neither heard the Lord nor accompanied him. But afterwards, as I said, he accompanied Peter, 
who accommodated his instructions to the necessities of his hearers, but with no intention of giving a regular narrative of the Lord's sayings. Wherefore, Mark made no mistake in this writing some things as he remembered them, for of one thing he took especial care, not to omit anything he had heard and not to put anything fictitious in the statements. So what Papias is saying here is that the Gospel of Mark was the product of Mark writing what Peter shared and taught and remembered. And what Papias is emphasizing here is that um, what Mark was doing was he wasn't necessarily a first-hand witness of all of these things, though we do know he showed up at the end of Jesus' ministry. But he wasn't the guy who was in those conversations. He wasn't the guy who heard from the lips of Jesus some of his instructions and the, and the stories that he told. But he heard it from the guy who did. And he was committed that I will transmit these as accurately as possible and not make anything up. That's what Papias is sharing here. Peter was the one who spent three years being discipled by Jesus. Peter was the one who heard the most intimate words and the heart of Jesus. Mark simply transcribed what Peter taught and remembered. So with that in mind, here's the idea I want to set in your mind before we go any further into the life of Mark. I want to plant this in your head like Inception style today, okay? Mark wasn't the guy who said and did things. He's the guy who wrote about the guys who said and did things. Mark was ministry support. He was the sidekick. He was Robin to the Batman, right? He never claimed to be anything more. Maybe he didn't even want to be anything more. But his impact and his influence has resounded in history. Every Christian, today and before, has been impacted by Mark and through the gospel that he wrote. Mark was small, but he was not insignificant. And if that idea resonates with you, right, that you're like, you know, that I can see being a better fit for me than some of these other guys that we've talked about up until this point, then I want you to really tune in this morning. If that's something you're like, I can connect with Mark, then I want you to tune in because his life and these leadership lessons are going to speak just a little more loudly for you. So with that in mind, we're going to jump into the story of Mark. Uh, it's probably better that we don't necessarily start with his first sighting. His first sighting is actually in the book of Mark, chapter 14, where he describes himself as running away naked after Jesus is arrested. I don't know why Mark thought that streaking was going to make for a good first impression, but that's how he introduces himself in the Bible. So we're not going to try and uncover his motivations for that today. We're not going to strip him of his pride or expose his bare bottom soul. Instead, we're going to start talking about Mark and enter into his life and ministry at a later point uh, in his life in the book of Acts chapter 12. And so this is where we're going to begin, Acts 12, starting in verse 11. Peter finally came to his senses. It's really true, he said. The Lord has sent his angel and saved me from Herod and from what the Jewish leaders had planned to do to me. So Herod had, uh, just to give you a bit of context on that, Herod had just killed James, who was the brother of John, one of the big three, right? James, John, and Peter. Uh, he killed James with a sword. And now he had arrested Peter, and Herod wanted to do the same to Peter, have him killed. On the night before he was going to, 
even though he was chained to two men, an angel came and set Peter free, took him out of the prison and let him out. And so that's what Peter is saying here. He's like, whoa, God really did this. When he realized this, he went to the home of Mary, the mother of John Mark, where many were gathered for prayer. He knocked at the door in the gate, and a servant girl named Rhoda came to open it. When she recognized Peter's voice, she was so overjoyed that instead of opening the door, she ran back inside and told everyone, Peter is standing at the door. You're out of your mind, they said. When she insisted, they decided it must be his angel. It was a different world back then, because I don't know how we got to that jump from there. But meanwhile, Peter continued knocking. And when they finally opened the door and saw him, they were amazed. He motioned for them to quiet down and told them how the Lord had led him out of prison. Tell James, this is another James, son of Alphaeus, right? Tell, I'm sorry, the another James. Tell James and the other brothers what happened. And then he went to another place. So on the night before he was going to get executed, an angel of the Lord comes and sets uh, Peter free. He is now free in the first place he goes to is the house of Mary, who is the mother <coughs> who is the mother of John Mark. Here's what I want us to pull out of this passage about regarding who John Mark is, right, or was. So John Mark grew up in a family that was Christian. Uh, Mark himself was a follower of Jesus, and he was there in the Garden of Gethsemane, as I, or Garden of Gethsemane as I shared just a bit ago. His family was also pretty wealthy. You can probably infer that. Wealthy enough to have a servant or multiple servants, and wealthy enough to have a home where they could gather a large prayer group. Uh, the reference to the home of Mary implies that she was a widow, uh, that her husband had passed, which is not necessarily uncommon because older men tend to marry younger women, and lifespan was pretty short then as well. And so Mark grew up in a home with a single mom, single parent. Uh, they had a close relationship with Peter, which explains why his, their home was the first place he visited after escaping prison. And they were pretty courageous, weren't they? Because here was Herod, uh, determined to persecute Christians and was killing some of their key leaders, and yet they were still willing to have a prayer service in their home. In the book of Colossians, Paul also tells us that uh, John Mark is a cousin of Barnabas, which is another little interesting tidbit. Uh, Barnabas was one of the key leaders in the church, the son of encouragement, who brought Paul out of exile and into ministry, was the guy who believed in Paul uh, after his conversion. So that's going to be relevant, as you'll see in a couple of moments, because that explains, or might be one of the reasons that explain how Mark got caught up in these next verses. Acts 13, verses 4 to 5. Meanwhile, the word of God, I'm sorry, Acts 12, 24 and 25. Meanwhile, the word of God continued to spread, and there were many new believers. When Barnabas and Saul finished their mission to Jerusalem, they returned, taking John Mark with them. So Barnabas had asked Paul to come to minister at Antioch. They started the church there. They're here in Jerusalem, and while they're here, they decide, hey, let's pick up John Mark and take him back with us to Antioch. And again, Maybe that we don't know the reasons, but the fact that he's related to Barnabas, he's Barnabas's cousin, probably gives you a reason why he happened to be on their radar. Acts 13, verses 4 to 5. So Barnabas and Paul were sent out by the Holy Spirit. They went down to the seaport of Seleucia and then sailed for the island of Cyprus. There in the town of Salamis, they went to the Jewish synagogues and preached the word of God. John Mark went with them as their assistant. So here's where the story is, right? Here's John Mark, just a young man who has grown up in Jerusalem. 
in his mama's household, and Barnabas and Paul have been ministering together, helping establish a church in Antioch, reaching out to Gentiles who have become Christians. And they're saying, hey, we're going to go back to Antioch right now. John Mark, we want you to come with us. So he is now leaving everything he has ever known, his home, his friends, everywhere he's had influence to follow them. They end up in Antioch, and here at Antioch, God's Holy Spirit says, I want you to set apart Barnabas and Paul for the work that I have called for them. And the elders in Antioch laid their hands on them and said, go. Okay, so as they're going, Barnabas and Paul, they decide to take John Mark along with them. But John Mark is going as their assistant. So he has been fast-tracked onto arguably the greatest missionary team and the greatest missionary endeavor in history. Certainly the greatest up until this point in time. Again, we don't know why he was chosen. Maybe because of need. Maybe it was because of Mark's faith, his courage, or his gifting. Maybe he was just really organized, and these guys needed someone to keep him organized. Or maybe, as I said earlier, it was because simply because Mark was Barnabas' cousin, and Barnabas wanted Dina Salo. So either way, whatever the reason might be, Mark was part of a team. A secondary part, but an important part nonetheless. And this is where I want to start with the first of our two leadership lessons from the life of Mark. And it is this, leadership lesson number one. Obscurity is where leadership and influence are born. Obscurity is where leadership and influence are born. If you don't know what obscurity means, it just means in the midst of uh, the unrecognized. You know... uh, We spent this series talking and highlighting leadership in particular. And I know there's some of us in this room that don't really think of ourselves as as leaders or influencers. Or maybe you don't even have a desire to be. And that's, maybe that's okay. Um, Maybe that's a wrong understanding of leadership. But that's, that's where you are. That's okay for now. But I will say that one of the things that's interesting about leadership is it tends to be a skip the end of the line type activity. And what I mean by that is we look at established leaders and admire them, follow them, want to learn from them, or maybe even hope to being like them. And there's something attractive about leadership, isn't there? Because leadership comes with it oftentimes a spotlight and influence that maybe we would love to have as well. But one of the truths, the understated truths of leadership, is it doesn't come free. Not for anyone. No one is bestowed leadership. It's earned. It's fought for, and it's oftentimes hard won. Leadership isn't granted with a title. It isn't granted with authority. You win it through character, through hard work, believing in people, and empowering others, investing in others. And every leader, every person who wants to become a leader, is going to be forged by at least two things, uh, time to mature and trials to strengthen them. That's what is needed for people to be forged into leaders, time to mature and trials to strengthen them. And those battles, most of them, are fought in obscurity during your times of being unknown during your times when you feel unseen mark was a young man but it didn't make or it didn't keep him from making some very important decisions in his youth that set the course for his life one of those decisions was to follow the teachings of this radical rabbi named jesus In the days of the early church, he and his mom, they also made the decision that we are not going to be intimidated by Herod. We're not going to be fearful of our lives. We're going to be courageous and have this Bible study in our home nonetheless. He chose also to leave his home. 
to leave everything he knew, to leave the comfort of what he knew, to follow Barnabas and Paul. He joined their missionary team to share the gospel, not simply to his own people, but to outsiders as well. All of these decisions that if I hadn't highlighted this morning, you're reading the Bible, you probably missed all of them. Because they weren't big decisions in the sense of big spotlight, wow, you know, cheering. They're quiet ones, but ones that determine the course of his life. And we have those decisions as well. We face them on a daily basis. And how we choose defines who we become. When I imagine leadership, I think of it as a sacred trust. And the reason why I do so is because I think everyone who chooses to follow a leader asks themselves two questions. Or anyone who chooses to follow someone has to ask and resolve two questions. And the questions you have to ask and resolve is, can I trust you and are you worth following? Can I trust you and are you worth following? The can I trust you question is the integrity question, right? Are you a woman? Are you a man that... I can trust and believe in that has the character that I'm willing to follow, right? And that begins by the things that you are doing right now, the decisions and choices you are making right now. Will you choose to be honest? Will you choose to be to uh, to yeah? Will you choose to be honest? Will you choose to be a man who lives or a woman who lives loyally, who is determined, who works hard, even if no one else is watching you? Who would choose to be faithful? When it's easier to cut corners, these are the decisions that will shape your life and shape your character. Most people aren't going to see them, but what they will see is the cumulative result of those decisions. Does that make sense? So the individual decisions might be easy to compromise on because in your mind, no one's going to see them. But the cumulative uh, weight of all of these decisions put together, they will leave a mark on your life and that is what people will see leadership is forged in experience the second question are you worth following is the vision and the skill question integrity alone doesn't make you a leader although if you don't have integrity you won't be a leader for very long promise vision and skill matter because people want to not only follow someone they trust but follow someone who leads well who can lead you to a better place than you are right now. And the good news is that vision and skill, they can be learned. Leadership skills and being able to cast vision, these are skills that can be learned. Read good leadership uh, books, right? Listen to some good leadership podcasts. Read articles, biographies of people that you admire. Put yourselves under effective leaders and say, what can I learn from their example?" Have them build into your life. There's many things that you can do. Again, these are things that are unnoticed, but important because leadership is forged in obscurity. Bless you. <laughs> so uh, the first missionary trip was wild that Barnabas, Paul, and John Mark and others were a part of. They preached the gospel, they confronted false teachers uh, and false prophets, they performed miracles. Uh, they judged the wicked. They traveled to places that had not heard the story of Jesus and seen their lives transformed. And yet, in the middle of all of this good work, in the middle of this first missionary journey, this groundbreaking missionary journey, something happens. And Luke records it this way in Acts 13, verses 13 and 14. 
Paul and his companions then left Paphos by ship for Pamphylia, landing in the port town of Perga. There, John Mark left them and returned to Jerusalem. But Paul and Barnabas traveled inland to Antioch of Pisidia. One small sentence, so many questions, right? But the big one is, why did John Mark leave them? Why did John Mark leave this amazing team? And the, the, I'll answer with another small sentence. Um, I don't know. Here's what I did find was really interesting, though. Uh, he went home. That tells you something, doesn't it? When we get in our lives, when we get to a place where we're stuck, when we're really confused, when we feel lost, um, when things are really, really difficult, what is it that we all tend to do? We gravitate towards that which is comfortable and familiar. We all do. That's what John Mark does here. He goes home. He abandoned the people who were counting on him in order to find refuge in the familiar. But it was a failure in many ways, wasn't it? Because he abandoned the people who needed him. He abandoned the people who counted on him. He abandoned the people who trusted him. So we might not know why John Mark left, but what does seem clear is he failed the people who were counting on him. And I want to make that a point of emphasis because, and don't, any of you, please don't raise your hands, but how many of you know what that feels like? To let someone down? To disappoint someone? To be the betrayer, not the betrayed? To abandon someone in their time of need? How many of you know what it feels like to fail? It's not like get a D on a test, right? To really fail. We all do it. In some way, don't we? For me, I'm actually glad the Bible doesn't explain why John Mark left, because it really doesn't matter. It was fear, it was loneliness, maybe he was sick, maybe he was youthful, maybe there's doctrinal differences. It really doesn't matter. Because at the end of the day, whatever the reason, he left the people who were counting on him, and that's always going to feel like an epic fail. So here's a question for you. What did you do in the aftermath of your failure? What did you do in the aftermath of yours? Did you get back up? Did you stay there? Are you still haunted by it? Has it caused, or has it caused you to live differently? Like, are you a little less trusting than you used to be, a bit more guarded? Do you live life with a bit more fear? Are you a bit more hesitant to take risks? What is it going to take to get you back on your feet? Before we play with those questions, I want to show you what John Mark did. This story takes place after that first missionary is finished. So John has left them. John Mark has left them. And they've continued on their first missionary journey. And then they finished up. And there was this doctrinal controversy regarding Gentiles who were coming to Christ. Uh, that they had to go to the city of Jerusalem to resolve with the key leaders there. And as they did so, after that issue was resolved, uh, this is where we pick up the story. Acts 15, verse 36. After some time, Paul said to Barnabas, let's go back and visit each city where we previously preached the word of the Lord to see how the new believers are doing. 
Barnabas agreed and wanted to take along John Mark, but Paul disagreed strongly, since John Mark had deserted them in Pamphylia and had not continued with them in their work. Their disagreement was so sharp that they separated. Barnabas took John Mark with him and sailed for Cyprus. There's a lot here. Uh, I actually taught on this passage at Faith Walkers. We're not going to unwrap all of it. But what I want to do is focus on something that's actually not written but assumed in here. Mark came back. He went back to Barnabas and Paul and said, I want to travel with you guys again. Now, we don't know the details of how that conversation went, but we can assume that the idea in there is that, hey, guys, I'm sorry. I was immature. I was stupid. I made a bad decision. I'd like to be back on the team. Paul said, heck no, that's not going to happen. Maybe he's not in a forgiving mood. Or maybe let's give him the benefit of the doubt that maybe he's remembering something Jesus shared in Luke 9.62, right? But Jesus told him anyone who puts his hand to the plow and then looks back is not fit for the kingdom of God. And so for Paul, he's like, look, you put your hand to the plow and you look back. You're not fit. Barnabas sees things a bit differently. He wants to give Mark a second chance. And there's this argument between Barnabas and Paul, an argument between two men who were closer than brothers. And they split over this decision, which brings us to leadership lesson two. Your response to failure will define your character and your leadership. Your response to failure will define your character and define your leadership. We all fail. That's why I didn't want to stop earlier, right? It's just understood. We've all dropped the ball. And some of the, and, and so we've all failed, and for every single one of us have. And some of those failures have truly been devastating, life changing, and I mean that in a not so good way. Failure isn't really going to be the issue here because we've all experienced failure. That's why I wanted you to see John Mark's response to it. He got up, and he got back in the game. Paul didn't believe in him. That's okay. Barnabas did. And you're going to have that too. When you fail and then you try to get back up, you're going to have people who say, hey, I'll come alongside you because I believe in you. And you're going to have others who don't. It's okay. You get up and you go. What about you? I don't want to just keep putting the onus on you as well, uh, or on you. I, uh, I, I know what it's like to fail. I have failed in every possible arena you can imagine. Uh, scholastically, um, I, I still count my biggest one is I, I literally failed Chem 2 in college, which is really interesting because my entire primary school, middle school, and high school years, I never had anything lower than a B, which is a big deal if you're firstborn in a Chinese family. Grades are really important. Um, the only C I ever got was in chem, chemistry. I went to college my first semester. The only C, the first C I got was in chem again. And then here I am my second semester, my freshman year, and I fail chem too, which probably wouldn't mean all that much except I wanted to be a doctor like my dad. That's what I thought about and dreamed about ever since I was a kid. And it's crazy. I failed chem too and had to scuttle that little dream. Uh, morally, I have compromised, I have fallen, and some of those have been big. Uh, today's not the day I lay them bare for you, but it's there. They're there. Financially, I failed more times than I can count. Um, 
talking to my wife, and I said, well, the worst. So here, it's one thing to make a bad financial decision. It's another thing to make a bad financial decision. It costs you dearly. It's another thing entirely to make a bad financial decision that costs you dearly at the time when your family is most vulnerable. So uh, we had one kid at the time. It was my wife and I and Josiah. Josiah was a baby, and we were pregnant with Talia. Uh, so one more on the way. My wife was no longer working because she was staying home to take care of the kids. And I had left my job in counseling to so from salary to no salary to raise support to go full-time into campus ministry. That's a very vulnerable time. We had literally no income coming in, and we were going to be living off our savings and the, little, as the support as it would come in and as we raised it. And during that time, I made the decision to uh, buy membership in a country club, okay? I know, it's as bad as it sounds. I had reasons at the time, but it was bad, right? Not only did we spend over $6,000 on this stupid country club, but we had these an or, uh, monthly membership fees that we had to pay as well. Horrible decisions at the time, made at a very vulnerable moment. That almost wrecked us. As a father, uh, oh man, if you could only know how many times I have failed my kids by losing my temper, getting angry, uh, choosing to be a dad through and discipline through intimidation rather than love. I am, I look back, I am so ashamed. I am so grateful that my kids, each and every one of them, have chosen to forgive me, but they haunt me, right? The things I look back in my life and I'm like, I, uh, I'm sorry that my children had to pay the price for my lack of love. Spiritually, yeah, a lot of failures. I want to share with you, just peel back the layers just a little bit on what it feels like to be a pastor who's let people down. There are people today who are not walking with Jesus because I failed them. And if you think that's not something that weighs on me, you don't know, right? Even more than that, let me tell you something else, that I realize, too, that someday I'm going to be in heaven. I'm going to stand before the King of kings and Lord of lords, and in some way, shape, or form, I'm going to bear some of the responsibility for that failure. So, yeah, that haunts me, too. Right? Let me tell you, with every single one, every single one of those failures I've shared with you, the decision was also made to get back up. Right? And the resolution was, yeah, I almost tanked our family financially. I'm going to be more determined, right? to get back, raising support, as tough as it's going to be, by God's grace, we're going to make it, right? To resolve to be a better father, right? To raise my kids better than I did. In every arena, as a student, right? As a saint, um, as a steward, right? As a father and as a pastor. Every single one of those made a decision, even as a pastor, right? I'm going to continue on. There's work that needs to be done. God's kingdom is moving, and I'm not going to sit here and curl up in a little ball reflecting on my failures, right? and being rendered impotent. It's not the way we want to be. How you respond to failure is going to determine the type of man you are, will determine the type of woman you are going to be, will shape the type of leader you become. You know, one of the reasons why I love pastoring the next generation of church, and when I say that, I mean a church that focuses on reaching singles, young singles, young families, and the young at heart, is uh, that you're still innocent enough, and I say this in the very best way, that we're still innocent enough to believe that we can make a difference. And I pray that we never lose that. 
because I don't want to be around people who are jaded, who are cynical. That is, that I don't want to try and lead people like that. That has no interest for me, right? So with that in mind, I want you to take on and, and remember this lesson, right? Allow how you respond to failure to shape who you are and how you lead. I love what Steve Harvey once shared. Maybe it's weird to quote a comedian at this moment, but whatever. He said, the number one cause of failure in this country is the fear of failure. I'm like, that is so insightful and wise. Number one cause of failure in this country is the fear of failure. It's okay to fail. Just make sure that when you do, it's for the right things and for the right reasons, right? Don't fa fail at doing something stupid, sinful, or ugly, right? Then you deserve the whatever consequences you get. It's okay to fail. Just make sure you fail trying for the right things and for the right reasons. What's far worse than failing is to never try at all. That's devastating. To miss the shots and the opportunities God sets in front of you. Was it, uh, one more quote, Kareem Siddiqui said, doubt kills more dreams than failure ever will. The most defining moments of my life have been forged from the decisions that says we will move forward. In faith and conviction, I don't know what's going to happen, but I know we're not going to stay here. Right? Don't waste precious time and energy worrying about failure and all the things that might happen if you fail. Take the shot, and if you succeed, great. Don't get cocky. Build on that success. If you fail, great. Get back up and try again with experience. One more great quote. Uh, the great Winston Churchill once shared about his definition of success, the flip side of failure, right? And the, the definition of success, he responded with, success is stumbling from failure to failure with no loss of enthusiasm. Isn't that amazing? I think about dour Winston Churchill sharing that, and I'm like, really? That doesn't quite fit. But success is moving from failure to failure with no loss of enthusiasm. That's a great way of framing it. And if you believe this, it will open your life up to being able to experience some great things. It's true for big success and small success. Either way, your response to failure is going to define your character and your leadership. I want to close with these verses, three of them, uh, Colossians, Philemon, and 2 Timothy. Colossians 4 says, Aristarchus, who is in prison with me, sends you his greetings, as does Mark, Barnabas's cousin. As you were instructed before, make Mark welcome if he comes your way. Philemon 23 and 24, Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends you his greetings. So do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my co-workers. And then 2 Timothy 4.11, only Luke is with me. Bring Mark with you when you come, for he will be helpful to me in my ministry. In case you don't know, these three letters, these three passages were all written by Paul. Paul, the guy who said, heck no, you're not coming with us on this second missionary journey. They were reconciled. We don't know who reached out to who. Maybe Mark reached out. Maybe Paul reached out. We don't know the circumstances of how that happened. But what we do know is Paul and Mark were eventually reconciled. And reconciled is more than they forgave each other. Reconciled is our relationship is back, restored, and better than before. That's reconciliation. And here's why I wanted to close these passages, because by now, going through 
the character and person of Mark over the course of the past half hour, what I hope you've seen is the type of person and the type of leader Mark is. He's not the guy who needs or even wants the spotlight. He's not the guy or gal who's charging into battle. He's the guy next to the guy in the spotlight, right? He's the guy next to the woman charging at the front of the battle. Mark is the type of leader who didn't lead for attention, but he led to make things better for everyone. Who wouldn't want someone like that on our team, in our church, in our home group, right? in our ministry? Someone who influences quietly, without fanfare, doesn't need the attention, doesn't need a spotlight, simply does what is needed to be done without complaining and without hesitation. That's the type of leader Mark was. And that's the type of leader I hope that for many of you who say, you know what, I might not, I don't have any interest in being in a spotlight. I don't have any interest in people putting their trust in me to lead them. And that's fine. Maybe those types of leaders don't need to be your aspiration, but I hope Mark is. Some of you say, I will do my part. I will make a difference. And in so doing, at the end of my life, maybe even realize that what God did with that faithfulness and commitment is greater than I could possibly imagine. Amen? Let's pray and close out. Uh, Lord, we thank you so much for the opportunity this morning to be able to, uh, to come into your presence, to be able to talk about challenging ideas and challenging things, but to know that uh, you've given us examples to follow. And thank you for the opportunity to unwrap uh, Mark's life story just a little bit this morning and to see the ways that he forged this man and the lessons he learned, the lessons he embodied that we can learn from even today. And Lord, I pray we would. I pray for women and men to aspire to be faithful, who would not be discouraged or, uh, or beaten down by failure, who will not live fearfully, but choose to live in faith and courage and boldness, who live with integrity and who will take the time to discipline themselves, to learn the things in obscurity that will cause them to have great influence and to set a great example farther down in life, Lord. Lord, we love you so much. We thank you for your great love towards us, and we thank you for your great power demonstrated um, in our lives. Praise your holy name, and we uh, come before you thankful in the name of your precious son, Jesus.